This is the Shift Podcast. Coming up on today's podcast, a new report says Canadians have no idea where their data ends up. Principal investigator of the Big Data Surveillance Project, David Lyon, highlights just how important data is to our economy and if data truly reflects who we are in a digital world. Also, it's Throwback Thursday or Flashback Friday, whatever you want to call it. Tonight, we threw back to the last time that the Battle of Alberta took place. Plus, are you okay with mouth typos? Taco, talk, tacos? No. Mouthos? I don't, mouth typos. That's what we decided to call them. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay? I'm glad we still have this music. I was oh, worried. Yeah, yeah. Not going Are you okay with mouth typos? Oh, like saying the wrong word? Yeah. I do that often, don't I? <laughs> I think we all do. I'm, I think we yeah, all do. I think uh, a friend of mine was at work and uh, he was in a meeting with a boss and he said, uh, uh, he, he, was, he, he said improper grammar, but his boss actually corrected him on the slightest thing. Like mm. the, he said the and I in the wrong order and the boss corrected him. I was like, Really? Is that your biggest concern in life right now is to correct your employee with proper grammar in a quick <sighs> meeting? See, like that bothers me. Now, I I don't know. I don't want to sound contrarian. I hope that's the right word. But I'm kind of of two minds of this, Ryan. Yeah. When I went to BCIT to study radio, they said, hey, don't worry about getting the grammar correct. Don't worry about, you know getting the words in the right order and such, because the meaning of communication is it's like, are you, is the message getting across? So don't worry about if, if you saying it the right way, if the audience understands it, communication evolves, language evolves. If the audience understands it, if the person that's supposed to receive the message understands it, that's all that matters. That's the one side. The other side, when I was trying to get a first radio job, the program director that I was applying to, who was fantastic, uh, listened to some of my demos, and he very quickly pointed out to me that I was saying, I've got a day off instead of I have a day off. And he was like, you, that matters. You are the, you are the, you work in the communications industry. You're a communications professional. It's up to us to uphold these things because they matter. And I was like, you know what? That is cool. And I respect yeah. that. And I found it like inspirational in a way. So I, I don't know. I don't know well, I don't what the right thing is all. here, but I will, but I will the, say this. I yeah. often cr- cr- correct people's <laughs> grammar, specifically my wife's as a way to assert my superiority because uh, deep down inside I am a small man. Oh, wow. I am a small man. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll admit that. Power. Mhm. Mhm. All right, yeah. President George Bush had quite the mouth typo. Yeah, he oh, did. He did. I haven't this week in a long time. Yeah, totally. This one's big. This is good. Yeah. Uh, the mouth typo sometimes referred to as the Freudian slip, mm-hmm. what you were thinking and not, you know, the the like uh, subconscious, what you were subconsciously thinking. Uh, he had a mixed record, right, as president, mm-hmm. and often faces oh. criticism for his invasion of Iraq back in two thousand three. We remember this: the weapons oh, yeah. of mass destruction. Got to find those things. They're looking for them. Can't let them just have those willy-nilly over there, you guys. Got to get them. All right, keep that in mind here. Ukrainian people elected Vladimir Zelensky, with whom I Zoomed the other day, by the way. Cool little guy. (laughs) The Churchill of the 21st century. Uh... He was empowered by electoral legitimacy. He won 72% of the vote. And now he's leading his nation heroically against Russian invading forces and defending his country. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia 
and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> like, all you can do is laugh. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. he knew right away, yeah. right? Yeah, George W. He still got it. He still uh, got that for speaking. Like, that is exactly it, Brendan. Oh. That is, like... This is this is exactly who he was when he was president. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, it's like nothing's changed. Yeah. You Not know, nothing's changed. And refreshing to hear, honestly. Totally. You remember when he said, "I believe that man and fish can coexist." Totally, like, dude. Like he said, Amazing. "Like the internet is a series of tubes." Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> like, but oh. here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, looking back on it, like, man, I. I I would be I would be fine if he was president again. Looking oh, at, at right some now, of man. the things Ooh. that have gone on in this, like if he was the leader of the Republican Party, and we don't need to get too deep into that. But gosh, that that is a Freudian slip, right? That is a Freudian slip. Here it is one more time: the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Do you, did you find, I'm the only, like, I thought it was really interesting that he said Iraq too at the end there. Like, he noticed that. I wonder if he's actually thought about his decision yeah. to invade since coming out of office yeah. or if he made a light joke to try to get over it. But, sure. And you yeah. make a great point, Ryan. And like that he, because he's, he's aware now. And obviously there's very little consequence for him. You know, it's just the public's like, we all kind of agree. Uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction. It was unjustified invasion. Uh, done deal. We all, we all agree on that. And so it's like, what is he going to say? Like, no, I was right. We should have, we should have gone in there and done that. Right. Social media are describing the error as history's greatest Freudian slip. Are you okay with mobile homes um i like <laughs> i like the mobile homes that are parked um i used to we used to stay me and my family at a place in sobble beach that was really nice and it was like a rv park but they were all you know installed into the ground i liked those those are pretty cool brendan no it's just as long as there's no tornadoes nearby fair enough yeah right fair enough Okay. A man in Austin, Texas has taken the term mobile home literally. Terry Gonzalez's home sits on top of his sedan, which he fully constructed himself. It's still a work in progress. His next project on the home is adding a skylight. Truth be known, it's all pallets. And it's leftover pallets from a Circle K sign, Gonzalez said. The chandeliers, I might add, are a recent addition. And everything is functional. He spoke to Fox 7 to share the sad but inspiring story. Gonzalez's living situation has garnered some attention on the streets of Austin, as well as social media. He says he appreciates the attention, but most of those showing support for his self-built home aren't aware of the reason behind it. Just brings out heavy emotion, you know, the love and, and uh, attention that you've given it uh, when for me it was built out of a tragedy. He said this all came about after the previous home he had been remodeling and living in caught fire. He claims family of the owners of that home set it ablaze. Shortly after losing his house, Gonzalez says his truck and trailer were towed and disposed of, and he was unable to get his belongings out, which included thousands of dollars in tools. Gonzalez's famous drivable home was the positive result of hard times. He says the support from Austin residents helps keep him going, and he especially appreciates that Travis County authorities have only pulled him over to compliment his home and not give him a citation. I just would have never thought that I'd have this moment right here and then to uh, be able to thank everyone personally uh, for Austin, thank you so much. You brought this to life in a way I could have never imagined. He doesn't plan on leaving Austin anytime soon, but he never leaves his home in one spot too long. You know, the van life thing is becoming kind of popular, you know? And this guy, maybe he's just ahead of the curve, you know, with the whole, like, living, travel, mobile thing. This is The Shift Podcast. 
Uh, okay, so something happened a couple of days ago in our country that really caught my attention, and uh, I thought it deserved to be talked about because this is one of these conversations that it seems to happen all the time, and we all kind of are aware of it, and we know that it's going on, but we also don't really like understand it, or at least I know I don't understand it. So I wanted to dig in and learn a little bit more. So uh, a surveillance studies group released a report, and this has been in the news, so you may have seen this. The report is called Beyond Big Data Surveillance, Freedom and Fairness. And essentially the report says this, Canadians, you and me and the people that we know and love, have no idea what is happening with our data. So to help kind of unpack that, I invited on the show David Lyon. He is a surveillance professional. He uh, was the director of surveillance studies at Queen's University in Kingston. And uh, he is just an expert on all of this type of stuff. He works in surveillance uh, uh, legislation. And I invited him on the show to help kind of unpack and understand this. I recorded this interview earlier today from a different studio. So if my voice sounds a little bit different on the recording, you know why. But uh, I want to play this back for you. And it's some really interesting stuff here. Uh, And I started with this. I started by asking David Lyon, uh, just for even, because I think this is a point, is many of us, we don't even know what that means that our data is being collected. So I asked him, how does that happen? Where does that happen? When does that happen? Like, what is data mining and data collection? Well, it's it's something that happens the whole time. There is uh, really no escaping it these days. The, um, excuse me, the way in which our economy works is increasingly based on data. So it's all kinds of things. So take your uh, smartphone as the most obvious example. Um, your smartphone is constantly exuding data. It's, it's, it's releasing data as you use it in different kinds of contexts. And that, that data is being used by the corporations that uh, uh, either are the platforms that you're using at the time or some other entity. But the, the, the fact is that all the time there is data being related to our uh, purchases, to our calls, to our location, to so many other things that has become economically critical. People are using those data to make profit, but they're also things that relate to our own lives because from those data, companies government departments and so on are profiling us, getting a sense of who we are, not because they have interviewed us and they've asked us who we are, but because they picked up little tiny bits of data that are uh, in huge numbers and putting them together to make a profile of us. Now, that's the kind of basic way that things are happening. Whether we like it or not, this is what is going on. Yeah, and I think that that is uh, mind-blowing to, to so many people, even still, that this idea that governments or organizations, that they know so much about us without us necessarily volunteer, volunteering that information. Like people know what my spending habits are, where, where I drive, uh, what, what times of day I'm not doing anything, probably sleeping, or you know, of the websites that I visit, all of that type of stuff. Now, I think probably one of the most common reactions when you talk to people about the fact that people are gathering all this data on us. And I'm sure you've heard this, but it's kind of this laissez-faire. Yeah, well, why should I care? Because who's interested in the stuff that I do? I go to the grocery store, uh, I go out with some friends, and then I, you know, watch the hockey game. Why should we be concerned that people are gathering all of this data on us? Well, there are, there are many reasons, and um, the, the point is that those data that are being collected are not just being collected. It isn't for somebody's collection of profiles of Canadians or you know, local inhabitants of a, a geographical area. It isn't for you know, just their pleasure and delight. 
What it's for is to give them clues as to how you live, what your preferences are, who it is that you associate with, all these kinds of things, such that the profile that is built of us is built partly from the lives of other people. Uh, everybody knows for the last, well, uh, 15 years or so, there's been this thing called Facebook. And Facebook uh, invented the notion of friends. Well, we had friends before Facebook, but the kinds of friends that we have with Facebook are friends that actually betray us because we are thought of in terms of the people that we associate with. So the picture that's built up, the profile that's built up of us on Facebook is based on who we associate with, what sorts of things we buy, what music we prefer, what sports we prefer, our education, I mean, everything. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a profile. Okay, well, that's one thing. But the point is then things are done with those profiles. The data aren't just collected, they are analyzed. And those, that those forms of analysis lead to different ways in which people get treated. Hmm. So it is something that definitely does affect us. We can't say, oh, I've got nothing to hide. I've got nothing to fear. Well, sorry, but that's not quite accurate. Really, our life chances depend in part on how we are portrayed to others, known others, unknown others. There are vulnerable groups, people who are in more vulnerable situations and it's the usual suspects. It's, it's women, it's black people, it's indigenous people in Canada. Those groups find not only that they are, as it were, under surveillance, but that their life experiences are actually made worse by the surveillance that occurs. Hmm. So it's not just a, a neutral kind of thing or something that affects everyone in the same way. We're not all in it together. Some of us have a worse time of it and our worst time becomes worse because of the surveillance. So that is my answer to why should we care? Yeah. Because it affects all of us, especially the most vulnerable. Absolutely. And I mean, you, you mentioned Facebook, which I think is sort of an obvious one for, for so many people because it seems like everybody we know is on Facebook. And I like to think of it this way. It's, you know, I, I have a, a profile on Facebook because I use it for work and for all of that, that type of stuff. And, but I, it doesn't actually represent who I am and the things that I care about. It doesn't, you know, uh, it, it doesn't represent the fact that I'm able to change my mind. It sort of says, this is Scott and this is who he is and yep. this is what he likes. But it, it doesn't speak to the fact that I'm able to sit down and have a conversation and have my mind changed through like dialect and discourse, which are the things that I think are some of the building blocks of, of society. And it's almost like we've, we just stereotype everyone just based on what we see on their online profile. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, it, it's obviously a dangerous thing to do because the inaccuracies that are built into it from our point of view, I don't want to be represented like that. And yet that is exactly what these kinds of surveillance do, does. What it does is to make us visible, as I say, make us visible to unknown others, usually. It not only makes us visible, it represents us to organizations, and that spills over into government departments as well. I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated business. Um, on the one hand, there's this kind of lopsided information whereby they know a heck of a lot about us, but we know very little about what they're doing. But there's also the complexity of the surveillance. It's done through algorithms, which are kind of arcane, mysterious, Computer scientists might know what's going on, but most of us don't. And, and so, you know, th there are all those complications that make it even more difficult. And so what we do as uh, researchers is we've been trying to make our research more accessible to a wider public. That's part mm -hmm. of the point of the conference that we're uh, running at the moment, the report that we released uh, yesterday. Oh, the day before now, uh, beyond big data surveillance, uh, freedom and fairness. You hear right. the word privacy doesn't even appear in there because the bigger questions are to is freedom and fairness. But what we've also done is try to reach out to broader populations by using films. 
we used some of our research money to make films. And now there are four short films out. I mean, they're not Black Mirror. Uh, A, they're not as scary as Black Mirror. And B, they uh, all relate to Canadian situations and they're all Canadian made and Canadian actors and, and so on. But it's sort of like very near term science fiction. The series is called Screening Surveillance. Mm-hmm. And you can find them on YouTube. And, and so that the idea is that that will just get, sort of give people an idea of like kind of open your thinking. eyes. It gets you thinking. Our newest one, which was just launched, is called Trez Dancing. You should look it up. I absolutely will. T-R-E-S-D-A-N-C-I-N-G. Trez Dancing. And it's uh, short for a new form of dancing among young people. Trespass Dancing. Ah. We're going into places that are deemed dangerous. The police are on it. But yeah, watch the film. And so there are four of those. And they're intended to get people thinking about the very questions you're asking. Why should I be bothered? Why should I care? You watch those and we hope that you begin to see the issues. So we're trying to translate our high level research into very mundane, everyday life terms. So, you know, I recommend viewers to have a look at those. Certainly. And I think like what what you're talking about is, is hitting the nail kind of right on the head is this idea that we look at this as it's, it's uh, Mount Everest and how are we ever going to, to get to the top? But once you break it down and, and sort of highlight an issue that I think people can relate to, uh, it does become a little bit more digestible. And then you start to process like the difference, the things, the things that you can do in your own life. I know one example that everybody sort of talks about is I, I go and visit a, a website that's selling bicycles. And now all of a sudden I get a bunch of advertisements uh, for bicycles. Like, is, is that an example of, hey, your data is being tracked. They know you're, you want to buy a bicycle. So they're sending you information on bicycles. Yeah, yeah. And of course, people will use that because it's really convenient. It has an upside to it, which is that, you know, once you are known to be in the market for buying a bicycle, then others will come in and show you and you can compare between the different offers you're being given. And moreover, there are advantages for the company as well, such that they get to know their customers better this way. And so, uh, you know, it's not as if surveillance is something spooky or creepy or uh, just simply negative. It is so ambiguous. Mm. We're talking about things that are not kind of inherently evil or you know underhand or whatever the unfortunate thing is that does begin to make them feel a bit underhand is that so little is known about what is actually going on and that is why we demand more transparency more accountability by these companies and by of course government departments who may also get their hands on those data absolutely absolutely and i i do like how you say that we shouldn't be afraid of this. We should, we should be aware of it. Um, mm-hmm. I did hear an example and, and maybe you can speak to this as well, because I, I try to put so many things in my life through this filter of like, Hey, this is, there's a, the potential for this to make our world a better place. Like for example, uh, let's say a government could take all of this data that they're gathering and sort of see, Oh, this is how traffic flows at these times of day. So it gives us the ability to improve our roads and our traffic light system so as to alleviate or create better flows of traffic, which would Mm -hmm. then uh, make everybody's life a little bit easier because no one wants to sit in traffic. So there are potentially some Mm -hmm. positive outcomes of of this data collection. But your point is that we just don't know. Well, my point is more than that. My point is that we should be trying to work out ways of having democratic control and direction. It should be data for the people, not people for the data. Mm, it's, that's a good way to put it. That's the issue. It's our human lives that are important. And of course, we can use data in ways that are humanly beneficial. And that's what I would be arguing for. That's what the research group that uh, I work with would be arguing for. So yeah, it's not... And none of these things are neutral, Mm. never, ever neutral. There is no technology that is neutral. So we've got to say, well, in which direction does it take us? Right. Sorts of what sorts of outcomes are there? Is there, you see, we don't 
we use the word privacy. We think privacy is important, but these issues are far bigger than privacy. They have to do with what I think of as data justice. Mm. So I'm talking about the data that make us visible, represent us, and then affect the way that we're treated. That's a matter of data justice, not just is my little life being intruded on by some company whose attentions I'm getting tired of. That's to make it personal again. The personal is actually political. These are much bigger issues, and that's why we need to be dealing with it at a federal level, provincial level, uh, municipal level. And frankly, it's the sort of thing we should be talking about in our homes and families. Yeah. This is where it's going to be, you know, the critical things are going to happen. It should be part of the way we talk to our children or in my case, grandchildren as well. Yeah. I have two young kids. Uh, they're aged five and one. So this is something, you know, and they're just, my five-year-old is, she's aware of, of cell phones and tablets and, and all of that type of stuff. So this is obviously something that my wife and I want to know how to address. And that leads me into my next question really, really well. So what, what can the average person, what can I, what can listeners, what can average people do to work towards I love the term data justice. I mean, it almost seems like, well, I need to use my phone. I need to be online. Um, Aside from, you know, cutting off all communication and living in a cabin in the woods, which does seem appealing to some, are there things that we can do? Are there measures that we can take that, that can improve or sort of create some uh, equity in, in, in data collection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there certainly are. I mean, one of them is just kind of being aware, following up. I mean, uh, we made this report that uh, is now being debated in the conference that uh, is going on around me right now. Uh, And the report itself, I think, is in fairly uh, clear English prose. Um, And uh, that's available online in English and French. And Mm -hmm. um, Because we, again, deliberately want to try to put uh, a sort of digest of what we have researched into the hands of as many people as possible. I mean, we want it to be, you know, anyone living on Turtle Island, basically, should be able to read something. And, okay, there may be difficult passages in our report. We are academics, after all. We're always struggling to try to make things make sense to sure. everyone. But, uh, you know, so that's, that's one thing you can... Uh, and then if you have your hands on something like our report, which, as I say, is online, English and French. And so there are, there are pieces out there that, uh, that we can be looking at. And as I say, just starting with the little film series that we put on, on uh, YouTube, um, if, you, if you look behind screening surveillance, there are also like discussion questions and uh, things that you can take further, things that you could read. You could turn it into a little, you know, course for uh, sure. you, you and your partner to work on as you think about how you're going to uh, educate yourselves for a digital age. But really, the changes are huge. Sure. So, you know, it is an important thing. And um, this is something that, you know, if people aren't aware that we are living in a very different kind of era, then, and, and it's different even from, you know, the world before Facebook. Yeah. So much has happened. You were asking in the first place about, you know, what is this big data? Well, really, it became important, uh, particularly after 9-11 in security surveillance. But it wasn't until Facebook that you had that added ingredient, which is the uh, capacity of ordinary people to speak into the system as well. Web 2.0, which became we became participants. We weren't just looking for internet uh, information, which is the way that we used to run run these things. We're not just looking for information. We are actually participating. There is user-generated content, and that helped to change the game. But then they switched to platform companies also changed the game. And that's why these massive tech behemoths are now so, so powerful. Mm-hmm. And somehow we have to find good ways of reining in and redirecting that power for good, for data justice, for, yeah, privacy, sure. Um, and for, but to, to use it for good. Exactly, exactly. 
And that also it opens a debate to what are the good things that we really think are important in life. And for sure, that is a critical dimension of it. Absolutely. But our data making profit for big, unaccountable corporations is not in itself a good thing. Right. I, I'd heard it even suggested, and maybe this is something that you can speak to, and we'll wrap it up fairly quickly here, but uh, that there could be some kind of an opt-in system where if it's like, hey, I, I, you're getting all this data that's mine and you're making profit off it. Well, I would like a share in that profit because it's my data. So I will, I will choose to to you know, use certain programs that I know will be tracking me, and you'll get some of that data. But I, I would at least get a cut of it. I think that's something that some people could get behind. But at least we would be aware and and like you say, have an idea because the report that you were talking about, no, most Canadians are completely oblivious to all of this stuff, aren't they? Uh, there is a deplorable lack of understanding of these issues, yes. But, you know, there are folks around who are doing great work and trying to help us to understand, and that is, uh, that is a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, if we, we could sort of cash in ourselves and say, yes, we should uh, receive some kind of uh, recompense for the data that uh, we are somehow releasing into the world. But at the same time, you've got to remember what I was saying, that we're not all in this together. Right. Those who are less well off, those who are in less good positions, who are marginalized, are always ending up because of the way we've made this system. And it actually magnifies those areas of life where the vulnerability and marginalization occurs. So we have to think socially. We have to think, sure, there are things that we can do, that I can do, you can do but also things that we can do in a way that will not simply further um, uh, benefit us. It has to be a social thing where we look out for the whole of our uh, you know, neighborhood, the whole of our city, and eventually the whole of our country. I mean, this is... These are big things that we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, I'm very appreciative that there are people like yourself who are doing this type of work, because as I say, for, for so many of us, it feels insurmountable, uh, but it's certainly not. There are people who are doing work and there are, there are great ways. I mean, we'll start with this video series and, and uh, it sounds like knowledge is power. So uh, thank you so much for your time. David Lyon has been my guest, principal investigator of the Big Data Surveillance Project, former director of the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you're doing uh, on educating us about this data. It's something that we're going to have to follow really, really closely. I know you're at a conference, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But um, yeah, again, thank you. And I hope that we'll be able to talk again as uh, this issue continues to develop in the public. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you also for giving time to something that is certainly. This is the Shift Podcast. The last time that Edmonton and Calgary played in the Stanley Cup playoffs was in 1991. That is a long time ago. So with that in mind, we decided to do a little throwback Thursday because it's still throwback Thursday for another 25-ish minutes in Vancouver. Uh, throwback Thursday to 1991 and talk about all of the other things that were happening the last time the Flames and the Oilers played a playoff series. So one of the first and most important things of that year we were just talking about movies, and we were specifically talking about this movie because it is so stinking great. The top grossing movie of 1991, also directed by a Canadian. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. He was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission... Get down. ...is to protect it. Ah! Come with me if you want to live. Oh, this is 
it is so good. Terminator mm-hmm. 2, obviously, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and directed by the one and only James Cameron. And I say the one and only because, like, I firmly believe that this, everything else he's made is incredible. But this movie alone cements James Cameron for always and forever as the greatest director of all of forever because the idea like forget avatar and the abyss and all the other incredible things that he has done. But the, the fact that he could follow terminator one with this, like, I don't think there's another personal like in existence that could have done that. No, he's the king of, of making a good sequel I and mean, aliens as well. Uh, I think he is the best blockbuster director of all time. Nobody can make a blockbuster like James Cameron can. That's actually a good movie. And it's also like, Talk about Schwarzenegger, but Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor yeah. is so criminally underrated. I actually met her at an expo, and she was the nicest celebrity I've ever met in my life. Wow. I went up to her and I said, I don't have money to pay for an autograph. I just wanted to say your performance in Terminator 2 is insane. And she stood up and she held my hand and started just like like looked me dead in the eyes and was like, Thank you so much. And I was like, I was shaking. I was like, this is like this woman is one of the best, most underrated actors of her generation. And she was just so kind and so wholesome. And uh, yeah, this movie's pretty wicked. And I mean, her performance, she, the action. Dude, when ILM's she goes, effects, uh, totally. Oh. When she goes to kill uh, Miles, Ben Dyson. Yep. Uh, yep. she, like she has be, essentially becomes a Terminator, right? Yeah, like the, it right? just, yeah. the whole thing uh, on its release way back in 1991, Terminator two earned $519 million in 1991, what? making it the highest grossing film of the year in the U S and Canada, as well as worldwide. And the third highest grossing film of all time back then it received generally positive reviews with critics praising the visual effects and action scenes. I remember my dad, like rewinding it, you know, when the T-1000 goes through, he like uses, he headbutts the helicopter windshield and then goes through the hole and, and him pausing and going like, how does he do that? Like what? (laughs) Cause it was so groundbreaking at the time. But of course, since its release, Terminator 2 has been critically reassessed and is now considered among the best films ever made. And I agree. I actually yeah. read some some criticism on it recently, and uh, it it talked about all of this of like how like intentionally James Cameron didn't include things that would reference the time. Like there's no cell phone or no like yeah. The only thing is some of the clothing, which even then, like you see Edward Furlong wearing a Public Enemy shirt. Like you see that today. It's not it's not that far out uh, out. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the movie stands up. So well, it's so great. Yeah, and, uh, no, yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing on you on yeah. this one at all. And James Cameron, uh, from Ontario. Now it's interesting. He's from Capus Casing, Ontario, is where he was born. However, Niagara Falls likes to claim him because he went to high school there in Niagara Falls. So, oh. in a village in Niagara Falls, uh, just south of the actual waterfalls called Chippewa. And uh, in Chippewa, the big sign on the way in says "Home of James Cameron." Which I don't know <laughs> really? if they can really claim it's such that. A Canadian thing to do, but I don't oh know if they can goodness. claim home because he he wasn't really born there. He went to high school there. And does he live there now? No, no, no he lives in California. Certainly, no. certainly not. Yeah. Uh, also, The Abyss. We've talked about all his other movies, but like The Abyss, right? He like built the hugest thing to like even just film The Abyss. Ryan, have you not seen The Abyss? Uh, I actually never watched it because I was afraid of it when I was a kid. Oh, dude. I was worried it was going to be a spooky movie. It is so... I've never seen it. It is so good. It's like, it's up there. I'll watch uh, uh, Army of Darkness if you watch The Abyss. It's fantastic. Okay, well, you got to watch the other two Evil Dead first, but they're only 80 minutes, so you can do it. Fair enough. Okay, uh, so let's talk about uh, what else was going on in 1991. I definitely had one of these. The best-selling toy was the Super Nintendo. Introducing the next generation from Nintendo, New Super Mario World, created especially for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. It's a bit more exciting, a bit more challenging, a bit more graphic, a bit more colorful, a bit more realistic, a bit more levels, a bit more secret, a bit more enemies, a bit more friends, a bit more sound, a bit hotter, a bit cooler, a bit weird, a bit more. 
bit more revolutionary, a bit more Mario, a bit more of what you want. It's 16-bit, and it's yours only if you get new Super Nintendo. Now you're playing with power, superpower. The greatest video game console of all time. Just, just saying. Bit. Just by a bit, Ooh. though. Yeah, just only by a bit. So it's a 16-bit console. Uh, I know we don't really measure in bits, but what's like a... How many bits does a PlayStation 5 have? Uh, like 20 billion. Yeah, I, I 20 know. totally. It's got to be... Uh, it has 16-bit audio. That's probably so. The okay. audio okay. has as much processing power as the entire, <laughs> as the entire uh, thing does. That's incredible, eh? I mean, the Super Nintendo it does isn't just a great console. It has incredible games, and that's exactly I mean, what it, it is. It's it just, yeah. it just was such a. It, I have one. I have one in like mint condition, and the games on there are just they don't really age. I mean, they're a time capsule. The pixelation still looks good, and. They're still fun, and all my other sports games on there, the NHL games and the football games on there are so fun. And I will argue that it's the last good Mario game. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. That that oh, no, you haven't played Super Mario Odyssey on the Nintendo Switch. Okay, that fair game enough. is okay. Un- it, in- amazing. But yeah. uh, to to Brendan's point, that Super Mario was so so much more than the previous Mario's, right? Oh, yeah. The previous Mario's were just like the side scroller. Uh, it just, it's the game that you get that comes with the system. Super Mario world. This, the one that came with the super Nintendo, like it, it had like star world where you had to find like the 96 oh, yeah. different levels and, yeah. and all the different things. And I remember getting the Cape and learning oh, that yeah. Mario could nope. fly like all of these things. It was so mind blowing. So when I got it, we we had that game, and then we also had F Zero, which is my favorite video game of all time. And racing they need to game. make more F Zeros. It's you know a racing game where you're going at like 500 miles an hour, you can barely control your car. That's I love the, that. Totally, game. man. T- I, we had like the TV that was in the cabinet on the floor, and I remember getting so close to it and feeling like like I was in it, like actually going that fast. You'd only had four cars that you could pick from. It was so, it's so like, but to your point, Ryan, it's super pixelated, but it's still, it like works, you know? Also, uh, the super Nintendo had the first Mario Kart, right? Which has gone on to become legendary franchise and the greatest, uh, Zelda, uh, of the Zelda series is on. Yeah, uh, is that a to link the to the past? Yeah. Yeah. Um, link to the past. And yeah. it's, that game is commonly considered the greatest video game ever made. I'd say it's definitely the best Zelda game. I mean, breath of the wild is a close second, but it, it yeah. See, you see what I mean? Like the super Nintendo, if you were growing up in the nineties and these every week you had a legendary game came come out and that's really cool. I wonder if I'm living through that right now. Probably you a little bit. Know. You'll never know. You'll never know <laughs> until... Never know. And it will be too late then. It'll be too late. Yeah. To appreciate it. You'll be nostalgic it. for it. You'll be old like me. All right, let's keep moving here. Uh, TV shows, one of and some of the most iconic shows that we could find. And this one, you guys, this one, it's like, it's personal to me. Play the clip, Brendan. In the beginning, we brought you a different world, and you said it was funny. Next came the Fresh Prince, and you thought life couldn't get better. Now we bring you the ultimate thrill. Announcing the Fresh Prince and a different world together on Monday nights. A full hour of outrageous fun. That should be different. Fresh Prince and a different world, NBC Monday. The Fresh Prince. I mean, The Fresh Prince and A Different World. But The Fresh Prince, uh, it originally aired from September 10th, 1990 to May 20th, 1996. But the series starred Will Smith as a fictionalized version of himself, a street smart teenager born and raised in West Philadelphia, who's sent to move in with his wealthy uncle and aunt in their Bel Air mansion after getting bullied at the local playground in his neighborhood. However, Will's lifestyle often clashes with that of his upper class relatives. Now, I just want to put the stuff that's happened with Will Smith lately on the shelf because, you know, that is what it is. But the Fresh Prince at the time, you know, it was like my graduation from... Zach Morris, oh, you know, yeah. to like, know. Okay, to like, yeah. it was like, okay, now Will is the person yeah. that I want to be, you yeah. know? I will say too, the, uh, I just watched uh, the reunion 
uh, that they did. I think they did it during COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like two years ago yeah, it was or so. During COVID, yeah. Yeah, I just watched that like a few weeks ago. It was interesting to see, especially to him clear uh, for Will Smith to clear the air with the original Aunt Viv as well, right? Because there was a whole bunch of controversy there, and I did find the character switch. They they don't do that on TV shows anymore. No, no. Uh, now they just get rid of the character altogether. But like back in the nineties, it was and before the nineties even, it was very popular to have a different actor or actress play a popular character and Aunt Viv was such a drastic change like it was a completely different character it was wild (laughs) that they could get away with that yeah they did that like Roseanne did that as well right that's another show that did it leaned into it and made fun of it quite a lot which I found actually kind of funny when they did that one well it's like we're in on the joke we know that you know for sure and it's funny that they didn't do that because there were times that Will Smith broke the fourth wall in Fresh Prince and that that's made it so I mean it 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 made him like the household name that like defined him as a superstar uh relatable lovable like like everything guy uh okay so that's tv shows uh what else what else do we have uh should we talk let's talk music i want to talk music yeah 1991 huge year for me i think one of the most important albums of all time may it, I don't want to be hyperbolic and or paint in the broad strokes and say the most important, but one of the most important albums of all time came out in 1991, and that's Nevermind. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. yeah, that's definitely one of the top. Yep. Oh, yeah, thanks, Brendan. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I got some here that's for you. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I kind of rushed into that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nevermind, to me, it like was the first album that I felt like encapsulated that feeling of I'm going to sound so cliched, teenage angst, you know, but it it had that. Yeah, Yeah. it had that. There were some other huge uh, albums that came out in 1991. Garth Brooks had one. uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. And we all know how big the Red Hot Chili Peppers are right now. Uh, just so it was a huge, huge, huge year for music. Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, that came out in 1991. Uh, U2. Uh, U2, Act Tongue Baby, one of my personal favorite Mm -hmm. albums ever Mm -hmm. of all time. U2, Why Don't You Make Music Like That Anymore? Yeah. Yeah, no, that is one of their, that's probably the end of U2 for me. Everything after that is, uh. Not uh, even all that you can't leave behind. Oh, yeah, no, that's just, just that's kind of minivanny. It's a good way to man. describe it. Yeah. It's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, acting baby, there, you know, that was pretty, uh, yeah, absolutely. It was very good. Uh, the other huge album from 1991 that you know, still is Metallica's Black Album that mm, came out in 1991. The Black Album. Ugh. I know. Enter Sandman. I am a I am a big Metallica. The Unforgiven one thing. Yeah, see, these are all one is not that album. One is Injustice for All. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Um, But the Black album is like definitely the album that Metallica needed to make. It helped me, you know, make a little bit of more metal mainstream. The problem was Metallica has never recovered from making that change. Every single album they'd have put out since then. They have not been able to recapture the magic, which is on their first four albums. And look, Metallica would have never been as big of a band. They would have never had the stadium, like 300,000 people uh, arenas that they do now without the Black Album. But they just have never made as good music as they did on Master of Puppets and, uh, you know, Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning. I, I just like it. So when I listen to songs off the Black Album, you know, they're not bad. They're good in their own right but there's just some special heavy metal magic that's missing on them. Um, But I understand why it's one of the best selling albums of all time. I understand why they made it. So I have a mixed, I have, I am split on my feelings on that album. Well, you know why, you know, it, you know where the blame lies. The blame lies with radio. They were going for the big commercial radio sound and eight minute metal anthems don't fit on radio anymore or as of 1990 on. No. So, yeah. And and grunge was huge at the time and Mm -hmm. rock was all over radio. So Metallica was like, hey. Let's do this uh, this chorus, yes. you know, verse, chorus, verse, pop hook thing. 
in yeah. a metallic form yes. and will be successful. It, and they were. It was when they, uh, they made the transition from Metallica to Alternica. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. Oh, you guys have never heard that? I, like, I have some buddies who are like heavy metal dudes. And so... Th- uh, they feel sort of the same way as you because there's de- it definitely still feels like metal, right? Like it feels like that. I get what you're saying, Ryan, that it's not as, yep. as as metal as the other albums. But after the Black Album, we start what were like Fuel and Load, and then Reload, yeah, reload. and then like Saint Yes. Oh. Well, that was when they tried to like go back to being like yeah. Hey, yeah, because. But- the Every, damage was done. Yeah. Every, there were all these pictures of like James Hetfield at an airport wearing like like khakis and yeah. stuff, you know? And it's like, that's like, the, the, it, all, yeah, like so, trying so hard to be an alternative, but still metal. But to your point, Brandon, like really wanting to somehow have the the yeah. thing that like Nirvana and like Smashing Pumpkins were starting oh, to yeah. come out around that all these uh, Chili Peppers, Guns N' Roses, all these other bands and stuff and uh, compromise, you know, that's, that's what does it. Yeah. So, but of course it remains one of the greatest selling albums of all time. And you were right, Ryan, one, of course, not on that album. The, uh, the song that I was thinking of is nothing else matters. Yeah. That's the similar anthem. tone, which right. yeah, the ballad. One, yeah. That's, that one and the other ones about being blown up by a landmine. Um, but one is amazing. When I saw Metallica live, uh, best laser show I've ever seen in my life because, you know, the part where it's like, it was laser that looked like tracer machine gun bullets hitting the stage and they had fireworks synced with the lasers. It looked like the stage was getting attacked. It was, it was incredible. One of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.